Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bun Me Chronicles podcast. This is your host and producer, Randy Kim. We have reached the final episode of season two, which is centered on the theme 1975. It has been quite a busy and unpredictable second season, especially given what has happened during this COVID-19 pandemic. Most of the episodes that were released for the second season were released prior to the quarantine. But as I was planning to wrap up the season, there was one person that I was interested in having. It seemed like a long shot. So one day I messaged him on his Instagram and to my surprise, he responded back and expressed interest in doing the podcast. So here I was, getting the opportunity to interview one of my favorite authors and social commentators. His name is Viet Tan Nguyen. He is the author of The Sympathizer, which is a New York Times bestseller and winner of the Pulitzer Prize. His other books include Nothing Ever Dies, The Refugees, and a recent children's book, Chicken of the Sea, that he wrote with his six-year-old son. In our conversation, we talked at length about the growing hostility towards Asian American communities in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. He shares his thoughts on former presidential candidate Andrew Yang's recent controversial op-ed, and he expresses how the API community can build solidarity and strength during this critical time. Viet reflects back on the 45-year anniversary of the end of the Vietnam War and his fiction novel, The Sympathizer, set in the aftermath of the Vietnam War and U.S. refugee resettlement period. There's more to listen to on the season finale episode. I am very honored and thankful for Viet Tan Nguyen for being a guest for this podcast. Thank you so much to everyone who has listened to the second season. I cannot thank you enough for your support. Also, wanted to send a special thanks to my sponsor, Lawrence and Argyle, a Vietnam-American-owned merchandise line representing immigrant empowerment. Get yourself a pin, hoodie, or a t-shirt, and show off your immigrant pride. Visit them at www.lawrenceandargyle.com or on Instagram at lawrenceandargyle or on their Facebook page. Hello, everyone. So I am here today with none other than Viet Thanh Nguyen. And Viet Thanh Nguyen is an award-winning author, Pulitzer Prize winner. Uh, he wrote this best-selling novel called The Sympathizer, which is definitely one of my favorite books. It's a, it's an, it's a fiction novel that uh, garnered so much critical acclaim the last few years and also won the Pulitzer Prize. Also, Viet Thanh Nguyen has written The Refugees, which is a collection of short stories. Other releases include Nothing Ever Dies and Race and Resistance, Literature and Politics in Asian, in Asian America. And you're also the uh, professor at USC. So Viet Thanh, to start things out with, how are you feeling right now, especially during this uh, pandemic that we're living in? Oh yeah, I think I'm coping with it fairly well. I think I'm lucky that my, my entire family enjoys so, social isolation, including my children. So that helps out a lot. But uh, it's, it's been a matter of coping, obviously, uh, spending time with children, doing homeschooling and not writing can be frustrating for any, any writer. And of course, watching what's happening with our country and seeing all the various kinds of political divisions that are taking place um, 
is not just frustrating, but sometimes enraging and, and terrifying as well. And so I think the way I cope with that is to, to write in the times that I can. Um, I think that's every writer's defense and, and, method, of, uh, and method of coping. Um, and so uh, there, the, the, one of the, the, the weird things about living in this time is that it does give us a lot to write about. Now we just need to find the time to do that. Yeah, and I think right now, given like all this time that we have to start strategizing, what does this new normal going to look like for us? It is certainly uh, an opportunity to reflect, but also figuring out what this, this new reality is going to look like and how are we going to cope and, and uh, work through this onslaught of, of difficult issues that are happening, especially in the Asian American communities where uh, the pandemic has taking a turn for its work for the worse for Asian American businesses and for communities who are fearing for their safety every day. And I know that part of your writing, you've also been very prolific on Twitter and social media. So I was wondering how that has experience has been, you know, writing on social media and expressing your own frustrations and what have you received back in return? Because I know social media is a very toxic uh, platform. Um, especially for writers sometimes when you're airing out your frustrations and sometimes the energy that you get back can be both very supportive and hateful at the same time. I was wondering how you've been able to kind of work through that as a writer. Well, I think different social media have different personalities. So I have actually not encountered anything toxic on Instagram, which is lovely, or on <laughs> Facebook, which I can curate my friends list. So for the most part, I don't have to deal with people who might write me racist messages or disagree with my points of view except for my author page which i can't police and then I, there i get to see some of that taking place but it's really twitter that's the minefield you know i find twitter to be a lot of fun it's like a it's like a video game you tweet and then you see how many followers you get or what kind of reactions you get and then of course because it's open to the public you get all kinds of toxicity coming your way as well um, sometimes most of the time that's that's uh you know you have to do your best to ignore that or it's a terrible experience but sometimes it's educational uh, you know, I think recently, for example, I, I retweeted John Cho's article on the pandemic and, you know, John's mm -hmm. basic point is that, you know, our, our citizenship as Asian Americans has been revealed to be conditional, um, as it always has been. And when I posted that, there was a usual kind of, usual kind of affirmation, but there was also pushback. And I think the most surprising pushback came from African or African-American Twitter users uh, whose general message was, uh, well, this has been happening to black people uh, for, for centuries and Asian Americans have never stood up for this, so you're on your own. Um, or, you know, look at how Chinese are treating Africans in China. So you get, you're getting what you deserve. These are both very problematic messages, I think, for, for obvious reasons for Asian American uh, users, but there is at least some validity, validity to some of the anger there about how uh, Asian Americans can be perceived by other peoples of color um, to be self-interested, uh, you know, to have invested in our own model minority myth, um, to only care about racism when it's directed against us. Now that's not mm -hmm. historically true for Asian American activists, but I think a good case can be made that it's been true for a lot of just people who happen to be Asian Americans, you know, just by accident of, of demographics. And so what, what is very clear is that we all become Asian American in times of anti-Asian racism. That's what's always unified, the Asian American mm -hmm. population. But uh, you know, that's not sufficient. You know, it's not sufficient to combat 
anti-Asian racism without thinking about how that anti-Asian racism always takes place in relationship to a lot of other kinds of racisms and forms of exploitation that goes back that go back to the origins of this country. So hopefully the Asian Americans who are only Asian Americans by accident of anti-Asian racism will learn from this experience and discover that you know they have to question racism everywhere that it manifests itself, mm -hmm. not just when it's directed against them. And especially when Asian Americans themselves are racist, which ha happens often, as I think any Asian American who's honest about this can testify to. Thank you so much for you know, sharing that perspective because uh, given what has happened and also there's a struggle of how do we ask for solidarity, especially from other black and brown communities uh, who have always been experiencing uh, this wave of racism, xenophobe, well, racism and other forms of hate crimes. I think a lot of times with the Asian American communities, uh, the model minority myths do hurt us. Um, there's this perception that we can handle things on our own, that we are better off, and that we are more educated. But in, but in so many realities, that's not always the case. And um, given what has been going on, how do we as Asian Americans also confront our own anti-Blackness or the, the divisions that we have within our own communities, whether it's you know folks who are undocumented, uh, whether it's the the distrust of other Asian communities. I was wondering, especially given what has happened, when you know unifying Asian American communities, especially what is happening against white supremacy, there is this there is something that's really pulling us back that is uh, not. Well, I would say if there, there's so much tension that's still happening within our own communities, how do we counter that? How do we work through these um, histories of, of distrust and um, our own, our own um, I don't even want to say self-loathing, but I want to say how we struggle to uh, overcome our own barriers to be effective against what's happening right now. I think back to what happened uh, in 1992 in the Los Angeles uprisings or riots, whatever you want to call them. And in the aftermath uh, of that, Korean Americans staged a march in uh, Los Angeles of some 30,000 people. And of course, they were protesting what had happened to them and to the, you know, the, the, the damage, the horrifying effects upon um, Korean American businesses and, and shopkeepers and just Korean Americans in general. But they were also uh, very careful to point out that this, this protest was taking place with a recognition that Korean Americans were situated in a whole field of racial and class inequality in Los Angeles and in the country, and that they were all victims uh, of what was happening. It was, you know, even if black and brown people were the ones looting Korean businesses and burning them to the ground, this was happening uh, because black and brown populations in Los Angeles were also victims of structural racism and, and inequality as well. Now, that moment has sort of I think almost been forgotten in Asian American politics, Asian American history, uh, because now uh, when we talk about Asian Americans, I mean, a lot of it is very celebratory. You know, we talk about Asian American accomplishments, we talk about you know, the ramifications of the success of Asian countries economically and culturally, and their, their, uh, their, the way that, that helps to transform the images of Asian Americans. You know, so we celebrate Boba, we celebrate BTS and K-pop and all these kinds of things. And all of that is all of that is fine. All of that is important. But 
when it comes to articulating, you know, who we are and what we do and what we believe in as Asian Americans, I think that we always have to do that in relationship to our place in American society, which is an ambiguous place. We've always occupied uh, the position of being in between, of being in the middle, of alternately serving as the model minority or the yellow peril in relationship to how you know, white supremacy and dominant white society uh, sees racial and class relationships in the United States. So that is not ancillary. That cannot be something that we that we deal with only when crises arrive, arise, that these types of issues have to be front and center in any, any kind of articulation of an Asian American platform, whatever, whatever that happens to be. Mm-hmm. So that is something that I think, you know, Asian, Asian American activists and writers and community leaders and all these types of folks need to think about in the COVID and post-COVID moment, um, that it falls on us to both combat the inertia of uh, Asian American communities themselves in being self-interested in accepting the privileges of the model minority, in accepting the the collateral profits of being aligned with white supremacy, uh, to reject those kinds of things um, in a very visible and uh, visible way that's always a part of our, our platform and not wait for other people of color, for example, to point out that we haven't done that. Mm. So Andrew Yang recently wrote an op-ed suggesting that Asian Americans should embrace being more American as a response to the wave of hate crime attacks that are escalating against the API community during the COVID-19 pandemic. So Yang drew sharp criticism from the API folks as his op-ed reinforced many harmful model minority myths associated with the API community. So I wanted to get your take on Andrew Yang's op-ed and why do you think his piece is so harmful to our community as a whole? Well, I have sympathy for Andrew Yang. I met him once and, um, you know, I don't think he ever wanted to be a representative for Asian Americans. That was never his his uh, platform as a presidential candidate. He was focused on universal basic income. And I think that's admirable. I think, you know, we as Asian Americans do have to think about how we make interventions more generally in American society, whether it's through, you know, the, the kinds of things that, that Andrew Yang has been doing or the kinds of things that I've been talking about, you know, situating Asian Americans relative to issues that affect all uh, Americans. But you know, once he wrote the once he wrote that piece, then he did become a representative for Asian Americans, given that he's one of the most visible ones out there. And I think that you know the the stance that he that he took seems uh, naive to a lot of people who have been involved with Asian American issues and have taken Asian American studies courses or done any kind of reading into Asian American history, because Amer- Asian Americans have already tried this method of proving their Americanness, and uh, it doesn't work, you know. And it doesn't work because we don't need to prove our Americanness. Uh, you know, many of us have been born here, many of us are second and third generation and more descendants. And of course, you know, we look around and we see that all the, all, all the other kinds of Americans don't have to prove their Americanness. If you're an immigrant from Europe or descended from Europe, you don't have to prove your Americanness. So even by conceding to the idea that we have to prove our Americanness, we've already lost. And there's no way, I, in my imagination, that trying to prove our Americanness is going to convince the racists out there that we're Americans. It's only going to prove that we are just people who are willing to, to uh, subjugate ourselves with a politics of apology and reconciliation. And I think that the proper starting point is not necessarily confrontational, although that works too, but the necessary starting point is assertiveness, 
by saying we're already Americans. We already have uh, historically done our bit to uh, serve this country. And we're not going to apologize or um, ask to be understood. Instead, we're going to affirm our, uh, our, our, our right to speak as Americans and to not just defend ourselves as Asian Americans, but to argue for a vision of, an, of the United States that is you know, more just and more equal for, for everyone. I think given what is, uh, given how triggering it is for Asian American communities to experience the violence, the racism on a daily basis, I, I go to my Facebook and my Twitter and seeing videos of an older Asian uh, woman getting attacked or hearing stories that even some of my friends have encountered, you know, going to a grocery store, you know, you know, being told to uh, stay away from them. and. I find myself reading uh, this onslaught of what's happening on my newsfeed to be so triggering to me. And it's hurtful because I know that we have to keep our ears to the ground. We have to keep aware of what is happening. But I was wondering, what does the healing look like for our own communities who are still grieving and experiencing this uh, wave of xenophobia and racism and let's also not forget that it's been going on for a really long time i mean we look at vincent chin's murder we look at uh, the japanese internment camps and um, the racism that uh, southeast asian refugees encountered when they arrived to the u.s especially in the deep south so i was wondering what does the healing uh what can the healing look like for our api community especially for younger folks who have not experienced this wave of uh, racism, or at least for a lot of them, it's for the, it's for the first time. Well, uh, I think that uh, we have to talk about this both in terms of personal and collective experiences. You know, I mean, if people are undergoing trauma, have been traumatized, have been damaged, and so on, it's a very personal experience. Um, and in that case, I don't know. I mean, we you you can go to a therapist, you can join a group, you can engage in meditation and religious and spiritual practices. These are very difficult things to deal with on a personal level. People can be so damaged that they may not even be able to, to see outside of themselves. And I'm not, here I'm not just talking about anti-Asian racism. I mean, we're, you know, your, your, your blog and, and your experiences are also dealing with you know, the legacies of war and trauma there as well. And we know that people who have been terribly damaged by war are not necessarily going to be the, the most happy or likable people or people open to messages of reconciliation or healing. It's a very difficult path. But the other path is the, the collective one. We have, we have a lot of precedent for how the public path can be a way of, of healing. And, and there what we see is the necessity for uh, airing the traumas in public, right? To tell stories about the trauma and to organize collectively around these experiences to demand uh, recognition for the Trump traumatic experience, recognition that an injustice has happened and to demand uh, some type of reparation or, or redress for this. And the reasons why these things are important 
are because oftentimes when people feel traumatized, they feel that they're very isolated, that no one else is sharing their experience. So to be able to talk about these experiences in public in whatever form, whether it's to you know, go in front of, a, of, a, of an audience to talk about it or to speak about it online or to write one's experiences in some, some fashion, that's very crucial because you get to uh, both narrate your experiences but also hear that other people have undergone similar things. Now, the other thing about trauma is that when people are traumatized, they lose a sense of story. Uh, in other words, everything is focused on this traumatic experience, which continually returns to mm -hmm. haunt them as if the past has never gone away. So the experience of trauma is a circular one. We're caught in a circle of a loop of time that goes back and you know, always goes back on itself. And to be able to tell a story, to, to be able to narrate the trauma in your own way, to put it in, in, in a more linear fashion helps to disrupt that traumatic experience because you then you can talk about causes and effects and moving forward and, and things like this. You can take control of your own experience rather than have the trauma control you. And if that's done also in the collective fashion where the collective is also doing this, then that's absolutely crucial because if trauma leaves you feeling like an isolated victim, telling narratives about the trauma that says, no, that wasn't our fault. That was because someone else did this to us and we have to hold them responsible for this and we have to organize ourselves to demand this type of recognition. That's, that's an absolute crucial transformation of storytelling. And of course, that's all harnessed to public political movements. You know, if you see yourself not just alone, but in a crowd of thousands saying the same things, demanding the same things, that's enormously transformative. And we see many incidents of this in Asian American history. So with COVID and the anti-Asian racisms that you're talking about, one of the things that we also see is that the Asian American response to this has been very fast. You know, I mean, we've had previous experience with these kinds of uh, uh, hateful moments. So we're not waiting in silence <laughs> and in misery in private. We're already responding and building the response collectively as well. And I find that to be encouraging. Mm. There was a quote that you uh, made uh, a few years ago that resonates with me and so many uh, API folks who have seen retweet this. Uh, you wrote uh, this quote, writers from my minority, write as if you are the majority, do not explain, do not cater, do not translate, do not apologize. Assume everyone knows what you're talking about as the majority does. Write with all the privileges of the majority, but with the humility of a minority. Why write with the humility of a minority? Because humility, humiliated people often do not learn the lesson of humility. That's why the powerless, when they become powerful, often abuse power. Don't become just like the majority. Be better, wiser, humble, yet still confident. So I would like for you to reflect back on that quote, uh, especially going back to your days when you started writing. And what did you learn in those challenges that have since shaped your confidence and ability as a writer? And uh, thank you so much for sharing that last fact, that, uh, that for responding to the last question, because it does go into this quote, and it does go into this power of having the agency to tell your own story under your own terms and being able to tell a story that um, we don't have to re rely on white researchers to tell the stories of trauma for us. So I wanted to kind of get your take uh, when you made that quote, but also how did it affect you as a writer uh, starting out, especially when you're in an institution that's very white-centered? Well, I think all writers work under conditions of anxiety uh, when they start off, right? I mean, we're, we're, we're trying to be writers. It's a very, very difficult thing. 
uh, many of us yearn for approval of some kind from our teachers or from editors or publishers or whatever. And this is only aggravated if one happens to be a member of some kind of minority and realizes that, you know, you, you are shut out of the dominant industries of publishing or uh, because you don't have people there who understand what it is you're trying to do. So the anxiety to, to try to speak to that, kind of, uh, to that kind of a dominant audience may be very aggravated for some kind of a minority um, writer. And it's hard for any writer to reach the moment where they say, I don't care about approval. I don't care um, about what anyone else has to think. I only care about my voice and what I want to say and my truth, and I'm going to say exactly what I want to say. Very difficult for any writer to achieve that, but again, compounded for any kind of writer of any kind of minority background. And so, yeah, I mean, honestly, I struggled for years and years with that because I understood the problem rationally, but as a writer, I, was, I found it very hard to implement a response to that. And I think that you know, it's necessary to reach a psychological moment where you say, I don't care. Um, and the I don't care moment extends in many, many different kinds of directions. I don't care extends to the, to the idea that I don't care what dominant society thinks about what I'm saying. I don't care what the gatekeepers think about what I'm saying, but it also extends to our own community. I don't care, in my case, what Vietnamese uh, people think about what I'm writing. I don't care what my parents think about what I'm writing. Now, in the background, I think I really do care, you know. The, but I, I have to reach a psychological state where I have to say, I'm going to write what I believe, even if, if it offends my parents and Vietnamese people. Uh, because if you write the truth, inevitably, you're going to offend people. And that's where the whole line about humility comes from. Some people don't like that line. You know, they're like, well, we've been, why, why should we need, why do we need to be humble? You know, I mean, we, we should not be humble, we should be assertive and all that kind of stuff. I think you can be humble and still be assertive. And the reason why I talk about humiliation is because I grew up in this Vietnamese refugee community of humiliated people. They'd been defeated, they lost their country, you know, they experienced racism in the United States. And a lot of them were just like, they did not come out better people as a result of being humiliated. They did not learn a lesson about humility and compassion. Many of them just became bitter and angry and did things to each other, but also reenacted things like racism within American society. So you know, I think we have to learn from our experiences uh, and, not, and, and think not just about self-interest, like because I've been excluded or because I've been humiliated, I just want my place in society without questioning this process of humiliation and exclusion. And I'm going to repeat the same processes once I'm there. People do that individually. Groups do that collectively all the time. So for those of us who have experienced a position of being marginalized or minoritized or defeated or effaced or humiliated in some way, it's not enough just to simply claim our voice and then, you know, uh, try to be uh, there at the, at the table of the privilege. We have to dismantle that whole system mm -hmm. of privilege, which includes dismantling the, the prerogatives of feeling superior and of feeling egotistical. And that, that is hard for people to do, especially if we're just talking about the artistic or literary context where there's so many temptations to, uh, to you know, indulge in your ego and uh, in, your, in your sense of privilege and superiority. So again, for a minority writer, there's so many challenges out there, both in terms of um, speaking one's truth, finding one's voice, but also not replicating systems of domination and superiority. Hmm. So, it is now the 45-year anniversary at the end of the Vietnam 
war, uh, the last civil war, and also the beginning of the Khmer Rouge. And, and, and you wrote The Sympathizer uh, about five years ago, which was also then the 40 year anniversary of the atrocities that have happened. What comes to your mind when you think of the year 1955 now? Well, uh, a moment of change, change and transformation, uh, inevitably, you know, for uh, for many of us who are Southeast Asians in the United States, it was a moment of uh, defeat and uh, loss of a country, um, and then the initiation of a whole new kind of life in the United States with a whole new set of challenges. And again, I think for a lot of Southeast Asians, especially adults who at that time, that sense of loss and defeat turned into bitterness and rage. And they, they focus on 1975. And if you're speaking about Vietnamese people, they focus on, focus on April 30th as the month of, of Black April. And they dwell on their own melancholy. Um, and I, I understand all of that, you know. But I also think that it's, it's something that I reject as well uh, because it leads to some, oftentimes some very unfortunate consequences that we can both defend ourselves as refugees here in the United States or as minorities or whatever without also indulging in reactionary or conservative mm -hmm. politics. But oftentimes the people who dwell on Black April are reactionary and conservative. And their politics are not my politics, even if we're both refugees. So mm -hmm. the way I deal with 1975 is not to talk about Black April or to talk about the defeat or the loss or to be anti-communist. But I think about it in terms of these larger histories and larger systems in which we as Vietnamese people or Southeast Asians were caught. And so that's why I think about it as transformation and change rather than simply defeat and loss. Mm -hmm. uh, because I, I, I locate my history as a Vietnamese refugee and Vietnamese person, not only in the context of Vietnam and South Vietnam, but in the context of the United States uh, where I grew up. And I think about the war and the war fought in Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia as a war that was not, that was specific to those countries, but not only specific to those countries. That this was a war, that was a conflict between capitalism and communism. There was a war that was a part of, you know, a centuries, a century long period of American expansion. And my thinking in that sense makes me quite different than a lot of other Vietnamese refugees who do, you know, are completely anti-communist and whose narrative of the war is focused only on what took place within Southeast Asia. But for me to, to locate 1975 in this longer history of global conflict in which Vietnam, China, the United States were all apart, means then that I'm more interested in talking about critiquing imperialism and racism and militarism and warfare rather than only focusing on what happened to Vietnamese people and their sense of loss. Now that does come up in my fiction and my nonfiction, but that's not the end point for what I do. And that goes back to the original part, part of our conversation. You know, we cannot just be self-interested. We cannot mm -hmm. just be focused on our own sense of loss and anger. We need to be able to connect those experiences to these larger histories and these larger systems. In writing The Sympathizer, what was the creative process like for you? And I know you uh, touched up on it 
uh, just uh, a moment ago, but was there anything that you also wish that you had learned when you wrote this novel? Well, I, I had just written um, the, a book called The Refugees, a collection of short stories, which actually came out after The Sympathizer, but I spent 11 years or so working on the, on the refugees by that point. It was a very terrible experience for me. You know, I was learning how to write. It was a very, uh, every, every, almost every moment of writing the refugees was a misery. Mm. And that was partly because I, I just was not a very good or natural short story writer. So then it came time to write a novel, The Sympathizer, and I felt um, completely liberated in writing The Sympathizer, both because the novel was more of my natural form, it gave me a huge amount of space and I had a lot of things to say, but also with The Sympathizer, I reached a moment where I said, I don't care. I don't, I don't care if this book is gonna get published, I don't care who's gonna read it, I'm just write this book for me. And that's very, again, going back to that crucial psychological moment, it's not just I don't care, it's that the writer who is able to write for herself or himself or themselves, that is such a, an important breakthrough because in the end, the only thing that the writer has besides their art and their craft is their honesty and their sense of conviction and their sense of truth. And you have to be committed to those kinds of things. And in The Sympathizer, in writing that book, I felt like I was committed to my truth, which is not necessarily the truth, but simply my truth and what I wanted to say. And so the two years of writing The Sympathizer were enormously liberating and ecstatic for me. Uh, so the high point of my, of my writing life, um, which I hope to replicate in the future. But yeah, so I have nothing but good memories about The Sympathizer. And the irony, irony, of course, is that in writing for myself, I was able also to reach a lot of other people. And that hopefully is, would be experienced for many of us, that you know, what, what we are most afraid of, the, the, the truth within ourselves that we think is so weird or idiosyncratic might be a truth that could be shared with a whole lot of other people who also feel isolated in their own, um, in their own uniqueness and in, in their own sense of their own truths as, as well. I was wondering if you had received feedback from elder Vietnamese American survivors uh, after writing this uh, book, because I know that you had just talked about how a lot of times, like the Vietnam War refugees, uh, Khmer Rouge refugees, and uh, Lao refugees, they, we talk about the politics that, you know, they become very reactionary, they become very anti-communist, their, their politics become very conservative. I was wondering if you had feedback from the elder uh, community it's gone both ways. I mean, I think that the the older Vietnamese Americans who can read English and have read the novel have been generally pretty supportive. Um, and of course, ironically, it's uh, it's partly because of the book winning the, the Pulitzer Prize. And then all the Vietnamese people who who don't read books or who might have rejected the book because it was from told from the perspective of a communist spy, many of them came around and said, "Well, okay, now we're we're going to claim this book, or at least yeah, you know, because it, it it they could share in some of the." The, the light of the prestige of the prize. Um, but and then, but they, some, some of them genuinely, you know, in their emails to me, were very specific about the fact that the book did, in fact, for them, say something crucial about the Vietnamese American experience and, and Vietnamese, or Vietnamese experience in Vietnamese history. Now, there are another set of Vietnamese people who, like I mentioned, refuse to read the book because it's told from the perspective of a communist spy. Uh, and sometimes they made their pleasure known to me personally, you know, um, which is fine. I mean, you know, I mean, people can reject books for any reason. I just, I just find it um, unfortunate that there are a lot of older Vietnamese who refuse to hear anything 
that the younger generation has to say. That was my experience growing up. You know, mm. the younger generation was to be seen and not heard. And of course, I understand. You know, the 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 older generation has earned its right to speak. But uh, and maybe this is very non-Vietnamese for me to say. I, I think that o- older generations have to listen as well. And it's not specific to Vietnamese people. Older generations everywhere don't want to listen to the younger mm-hmm. set. But when I was growing up, I thought, oh, my God, I, I just have to spend hours and hours listening to these older Vietnamese people say their thing at community events or at family functions or whatever. And I just can't bear to hear this stuff anymore. Um, I want, when do I get a, the chance to speak? When does my generation get the chance to speak? And I think that for many of us who grew up being very filial, it's a very difficult moment for us because we respect our elders. We know what they've been through. We love them. But some part of us may think they're wrong about some things. And so how do we speak up about that without hurting and offending them? Sometimes you can't. (laughs) Sometimes if you have to speak up and it's directly antithetical to what your parents believe or what the older generation believes, you still got to speak, you know, uh, if you're a writer. Um, And so that, that I think uh, was, was very crucial for me uh, in writing this book, knowing that I would offend a lot of this old, these older, these people of the older generation. And they not only would, they would just just simply refuse to grapple with anything that, that, that was uh, antithetical to their experience. And they would simply dismiss people like me by saying, well, you didn't, you, you don't know anything. You, 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 you don't know how terrible the communists are. You weren't there to experience these kinds of things. And on one hand, that's a valid argument. On the other hand, you know, that, that makes writing impossible. <laughs> if, if writers could uh-huh. only write what they themselves have experienced, you know, we'd have a very limited kind of, of literature. And of course, as a writer, I believe that the imagination can be greater than experience. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what we turn to, you know, to stories for sometimes is, is in the hope that imagination can transport us beyond our own experience and, and the limits of our own, our, of our own knowledge. You, you know, you really bring up a very important part that just opens up like the floodgates for me because, you know, in my relationship with my father, uh, my father is a Khmer Rouge survivor and he would talk about it his experience ad nauseum when he gets triggered. And when I had thought about trying to write about his story, I mean, he would get very upset about it. He would feel that this is his story and that this is not for me to tell. And there's oftentimes when I've been in community spaces, especially in the Cambodian community, I, I serve on the board for the Cambodian Museum up in Chicago, and we've had elders talk. And I do notice that they do tend to I don't want to generalize, but there are some survivors that will drone on for a long period of time and getting re-traumatized by telling the same story to the point where it starts to drain other community members in community spaces. And I do see that in a way scaring off some of our younger uh, community members who don't seem to have a way of coping or grasping how to connect, how to uh, work with the trauma of our elders who have experienced um, tragedies that they could not, uh, or they weren't able to heal from or be in a position to heal from. So it, it does touch up that particular memory and that a lot of uh, the reason why that there is such a, that there's such a generational gap between, you know, the 1.5 second generation, uh, Asian Americans and um, those, or our parents or our grandparents who had arrived uh, to the US. Um, Thinking of this whole, uh, this cultural divide, how do you, what would you say to 
people in the millennial Generation Z uh, folks who are interested in trying to capture or understand their parents' stories because when we look at 45 years, um, any adult survivors who say at the age of 20 years old in 1975 are now 65 years old and older. And um, as Helen Zia once said about writing the, uh, uh, the Nanjing Massacre survivors, she said that time is not on her side. And right now time isn't on her side to capture a lot of these stories as a lot of our elders are starting to transition off. So I was wondering, what do you say to our community, our younger folks who are interested in trying to understand their family's history, but doing it in a way that doesn't feel like it's ex exploiting or to, um, you know, or those who are very worried about opening up Pandora's box and not being able to help close it back in? Well, that's a very difficult question, of course. Um, there's no easy answer to that one. I think we all have to make our own decisions about that. If you're talking about, you know, how do I understand my family's experience in a private space, like this within the space of your own family? Well, you have to be willing to listen. Uh, now, I think we're all used, we of the younger generation are very used to listening. We listen to our parents and grandparents' stories and relative stories when they want to tell them. Uh, and sometimes they don't want to tell them. So that these are two different different kinds of extremes, right? Like the, the example that you talked about, people can't stop talking about an experience because they've been traumatized. And the flip side, people won't talk about experiences because they've been traumatized or, or don't want to transmit that knowledge or relive that experience. So it's a delicate negotiation either way for the younger generation who wants to know. For the younger generation to either say, okay, I've heard enough of this story. You've told me 10 times. I don't need to hear it again. Or you haven't talked enough. And can you try to tell me some more? That all happens within the interpersonal space, right? The, the other challenge in the collective space, in the public space, is, is, is a little bit different, I think, okay? Because I think about these older folks, and I know we're supposed to respect them because of their age and the, what they've been through, and the idea that they have gleaned wisdom from their experiences. I'm, I'm actually a lot more skeptical, you know. I, I think we can respect people for their experience and what they've been through without thinking that they're wise. Age doesn't necessarily make you wise. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from my own experience, I think that one of the, the, the wisest things that an older person can do is not only to claim their own experience and their own knowledge and to share it with other people, including the young, but to also acknowledge at a certain moment that they have to listen that the young have something to say, the younger have something to say. And I'm, not, I'm saying that not simply as someone who wants to be heard, but as someone who is now older and has to acknowledge that there are all these people younger than me who have things to say that I don't have any awareness or understanding of. And so it's wiser for me to shut up and listen when someone of a younger generation comes up with a, with a different kind of story and to create spaces for these newer stories to emerge. Now again, maybe it's a very you know, American or Western concept versus what happens in Vietnam or, or in Cambodia, but we're Americans at this point. Um, and so we inevitably absorb some of these cultural ideas. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that it's necessarily um, an act of 
of being unethical to tell one's own story or to tell one's own truth. If you decide to take your own family's experience and put it into your story, then we get into the area of ethics and betrayal, which is very complicated. But there's nothing stopping anybody of the younger generation telling their own story separate from what their parents or their grandparents have gone through. And we're all obligated to do that. But sometimes these stories overlap. Sometimes we want to tell the stories of our parents and our grandparents and what they've been through. And sometimes that can amount to an act of betrayal. If your parents or grandparents are saying, hey, we don't want you to talk about this, or now that you've talked about this, we can tell you, you got it wrong. From their perspective, you betrayed them. It reminds me of what Ocean Bong said, because a couple of years ago, when I was at his, uh, at his uh, talk event for his uh, poetry book, this was before um, Unearthed Were Briefly Gorgeous, I asked him that question, how was it that you were able to get your mom to tell you her story? And the first thing he said was to consider asking them is consider betrayal. And I could not hear a pin drop when he said that because it was something that I myself and so many other folks in our community have struggled with is how do we honor our parents' legacy but without feeling like we're exploiting them, without feeling like as if we're taking advantage or especially when we are privileged uh, that we did not go through the trials and tribulations that, um, that they had to endure coming to the U.S. Uh, so. Well, I think that there's, there's a difference between betrayal and uh, being unethical or exploitative. And it may seem kind of weird to even draw this distinction, but you know, telling stories is definitely something that involves questions of ethics and exploitation. Okay, you can do things ethically or unethically, you can exploit or, or not exploit, all right? And uh, every writer has to find their own way through there. But I think it's very clear when, when a story is being exploitative or being unethical. Um, for me, that, that means that you have, you, have, you have taken a story and you're gonna make some enormous amounts of profit or get advantage from it in some way and doing a dis, you know, a, an injustice or a disservice to the people whose stories you're, you're telling. Uh, but I think it's also possible to be ethical in your storytelling and yet still betray people. I mean, if, if, the, if, the, if the, the, the rule is don't talk about us, don't talk about our experiences, and you decide to talk about those experiences, even in an ethical fashion, you've already betrayed the people who've given you that command. I don't, there's, like I said, there's no easy way around it at all. I go back to, I think the classic version of this is Maxine on Kingston's The Woman Warrior, where the opening line is, you must not tell anyone what I'm about to tell you, my mother said. And of course, the whole story is about telling everybody what the mother has just told the daughter not to tell people. Mm. So the act of betrayal is already there in the very first sentence of the book. Uh, but the rest of the woman warrior is, I think, a very ethical way of telling the mother's story and all the related stories that comes up because it draws attention to the betrayal and the act of storytelling. So I think that's really crucial. I mean, people who exploit, who are unethical, they don't draw attention to what they're doing. They try to do everything under the radar and you know, try to dissemble and be dishonest. But if you're going to tell your, your, somebody's story and they told you not to tell that story or they object to you telling any kinds of stories, draw attention to that implicate yourself in the act of storytelling. Uh, because, you know, as storytellers, we have an obligation, again, to, to our own truth, to our own emotions, to our own voice, uh, and to the very idea that storytelling needs to exist. Uh, 
But if we betray people, we need to own that. We have to be responsible for that act of betrayal. Mm. A couple of years ago, I know that you started up your own blog called Diacritics, which I highly recommend anyone to uh, visit. It's actually a space uh, for Southeast Asian American, Southeast Asian, Southeast Asian American, Southeast Asian of the diaspora artists to uh, share their work. And you had talked about wanting to create spaces for younger uh, uh, Southeast Asian folks to share their stories and to share their experiences. But I was wondering what your uh, experience was like, you know, putting that together and also how also you're amplifying the, the voices of many other Southeast Asian, Southeast Asian American folks. I think I, I, I created that blog part out of this impulse that has driven me for a very long time, which is that it's important to create artistic community. And, you know, I, I, I uh, even as a college student, I was participating in these Vietnamese American art groups and so on. And the whole idea there was, of course, it's important for each of us individually to have the opportunity to tell our stories, but we also need to encourage others to work in partnership, to create a, a community um, in the belief that a lot of voices is more important than just one voice. Um, and if you become a successful writer in the United States, especially as a member of some kind of minority, the temptation that is offered to you is, is often to be the voice for the voiceless, to be the singular spokesperson for your community, whatever that is. It fits very well into the individualist ethos of the United States, and it's easy to exploit in a capitalist fashion. Right? I don't believe in that. And I, you know, so I, I felt that um, uh, that it, it it was always important for me to uh, try to foster um, the possibility of, of many different kinds of Vietnamese and Southeast Asian voices to speak. And so I just started Diacritics on a whim and with no budget on, and on WordPress, a free site. And you know, just ask people I knew to contribute stuff to it, and it's grown since then to being something a little bit more professional, where we have you know paid editors working on stories, and uh, and but the impulse is is still the same, you know, is to provide a platform for people sometimes who are established writers, but most often are people who are what we would call emerging. You know, they haven't published a book yet. Um, you know, they, they have poems, they have stories, they have memoirs that they want to develop and to write, and we give people an opportunity to, to share those kinds of things. Um, and so I think it's absolutely crucial. I mean, this is how we, as, you know, giving people that first chance um, is a way for them to feel confident in themselves as, as writers. And eventually, 10 or 20 years down the line, we'll see books from a lot of these uh, a lot of these people. And um, I, I think it's absolutely crucial, whether we're talking about Vietnamese or Cambodians or Laotians, that we have more than just one or two authors from, from each group, but that we have dozens, so that uh, you know, individual writers don't feel as if they're carrying the entire burden of representation, and that communities don't feel that they, that they only have one, one or two people to speak for them. Mm. And also, uh, what other future projects are you currently working on now that this pandemic is giving you a little more time to be creative and to take a step back? Uh, what projects are you currently uh, been working on? I know one of my friends had asked me, are you going to, do you think that there's going to be a film for The Sympathizer? And um, do you think there's going to be a follow-up to that novel? Well, I finished the sequel to The Sympathizer right before the, the quarantine hit. So, um, the, but the publication date was pushed back because of COVID to March 2021. That's the committed, 
it's, it takes up exactly where the sympathizer left off and, and brings our, our protagonist to Paris of the 1980s where he gets involved in all kinds of naughty stuff, um, but it's still very political and has a lot to say about French racism and French colonialism, which you know, we as Southeast Asians share a history of. Uh, and then um, I'm supposed to be writing a nonfiction book right now, which I think I'll get started on next week. <laughs> it's about everything, you know, it, it includes uh, some, some memoirs, some politics, some stuff about storytelling and America and war and, and all, many of the issues that we, that we talked about, but it's a big mess right now. So hopefully I'll be able to find something coherent to say. And also for your two kids, I know that they're very young and as they get older, what would you tell them about your family's experience with the migration journey? And what would you, in a way, be able to tell them, but also, you know, looking into the intergenerational trauma lens, because it does carry over several generations, how do you hope to help break that cycle? I'm very honest with my kids. You know, one's five months old, so I can't do anything with her. But <laughs> my, my son, who's six, you know, he already knows what a refugee is. He knows, you know, I, I mean, we don't get into all the details, but, you know, he, he knows that we, 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 his parents and his grandparents are all refugees. He knows that there was a war in Vietnam. He knows that the French were there colonizing us. I mean, because my wife and I talk about these issues in front of him as part of our work, but also, you know, out of this idea that, you know, I mean, kids can absorb a certain amount of information without being necessarily traumatized. You know, I don't, I don't give them all the gory details, but it, it, there's no point sheltering him from, from these big historical issues. And as he gets older, we'll get into more of the, the details. So, I mean, I learned a little bit from my own experiences with my parents, you know, in terms of what I would want from them, that they weren't always you know, forthcoming about their own personal histories and so on. And partly that was a, a question of the language barrier. But, um, you know, I, I, I want to be honest with my children about uh, all the various issues that, that our families have gone through, but that they will also likely encounter as well, you know. So, uh, you know, it'd be great if my, my children went to Vietnam at some point, but I want them to go knowing the history and not just, you know, seeing it as, you know, a tourist destination or some, or, you know, some kind of um, capitalist hotspot. Um, I want them to grow up to be, you know, people who, who, who are Americans, which, you know, my son already feels himself to be, but who's also aware of the, the complicated history of the United States, so that he, he knows about the histories of colonialism and racism and and all those kinds of uh, all those kinds of things, and it's up to the parents, I think, to help to begin inoculating the inoculating their children against the kinds of ideologies that they're going to receive every day from school and from dominant society. So, you know, he's encountered you know, racism already. Um, you know, he's he's seen anti-black racism. People have said anti-black things in front of him mm. because you know you know when African Americans are around, and you know. My, my wife and I, we have to step in immediately and say, hey, look, this is, this is wrong, and this is why it's wrong. There's no point ignoring it. Uh, I mean, it's even worse if we ignore these kinds of things. And so we live in a society that has all kinds of inequalities, and these, he will, he'll, my children will witness these inequalities. And, uh, my, my, and, and my wife and I, knowing that the school system may not educate children about these inequalities, we have to do that ourselves. Hmm. Thank you so much for your time so far. And honestly, I've been just so blown away by our conversation and I really appreciate this. And I know that um, our audience is going to really appreciate this conversation, especially when we're you know, going over issues regarding uh, the after effects of war, 
uh, what do we do to carry the legacy of our parents and also our own legacy, the history that we're trying to write and to document and to uh, uh, pursue. But also we're thinking about the ways of how we can uh, uh, coalesce with other communities, uh, especially of color, to uh, rally against white supremacy, to find ways to navigate through these difficult periods of time where we are still dealing with the, uh, the ongoing uh, racism, the violence that are happening. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm so blown away by our conversation and just so thankful that you've taken the time to uh, talk with me on this episode. So uh, one last thing is where can we find your work? Where can we follow you? Oh, you go to my website, www.vietwin.info, um, which has links to all the books and, and uh, you have your choice of buying them from you know, Amazon to independent booksellers. Uh, so the books are very, very easy to find. I'll make a last pitch for the last book I published, Chicken of the Sea with my six-year-old son, Ellison. That, was, that book was his idea and his inspiration. Oh. And lo and behold, it makes a perfect uh, gift for, uh, for families uh, with uh, little children who want to hear about chickens who run off to become pirates. So what do you think you're going to do uh, once the pandemic is over, what is the first thing that you're going to do? Oh, well, I mean, the question is, when is the pandemic over? Is the pandemic over question. when the quarantine is lifted or is it, you know, over when, you know, two or, you know, one or two or three years down the road when the vaccine's here? I don't know. I think that um, uh, I'm actually, you know, not like super eager to be the first one to go out there and go sit in a bar or go to the beach or anything like that. I think, you know, my refugee instincts say, let someone else go first. <laughs> so my, when the pandemic's over, I'm still going to be here. I'm still going to be in quarantine watching waves of Americans throw themselves out there and, and see what happens. So, so no book tour for you? For a while. No, so, uh, gosh. We'll see. We'll see about that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I cannot wait to hear more about your upcoming work, especially the sequel to The Sympathizer. And I also encourage people to follow Vietnam Win on Twitter and Instagram because there's always everything that you're saying. And I love watching what you're writing and what you're sharing. It's definitely just so thought provoking and very much needed, especially in, in the time where we're trying to find reason, where we're trying to find a sense of where, what do we do now? So really, thank you so much for your time, Vietnam Win. It's, it's a total honor. To Thanks so much, Randy. It was a real pleasure. Well, that is all for today. Thank you for listening. And be on the lookout for future episodes. So follow me on The Bunby Chronicles on Facebook. Or you can follow me on Instagram at bunmi underscore chronicles. Thank you again and looking forward to sharing more with you. Thank you.